Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Uran Pharmaceuticals, Brutex Pharmaceuticals, and Axcan Pharma. Today's program is a follow-up to the November 2009 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review topic, Cystic Fibrosis-Related Diabetes, or CFRD. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, and click on the December 2009 podcast link. At the conclusion of this audio activity, participants should be able to discuss how diagnostic criteria were chosen for cystic fibrosis-related diabetes, describe the appropriate screening tests for diabetes and CF, and explain the evidence basis for insulin as an accepted therapy for CFRD. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line we have with us our November issues author. Dr. Tony Moran is a professor of pediatrics and the director of pediatric endocrinology at the medical school at the University of Minnesota. She has disclosed that she has no relationships with commercial supporters and that her presentation today will not include discussion of off-label uses. Dr. Moran, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Dr. Moran, you co-chaired a recent conference on cystic fibrosis-related diabetes. Tell us a little about that, if you would. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has actually held three conferences on cystic fibrosis-related diabetes, and I've been privileged enough to be part of all three of them. The first one was back in 1990 when we really didn't know a lot about it other than that we were just beginning to recognize it was a serious problem. The second one was in 1998 when we had some new data and could start to make some recommendations. A lot has happened since then. We've learned a lot since then. But, you know, that was more than 10 years ago. And so in September of 2009, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation held a third CFRD consensus conference. And what was exciting about this one was that it was co-sponsored by the two major pediatric and adult diabetes associations, the American Diabetes Association and the Lawson Wilkins Pediatric Endocrine Society. So we have a whole new set of recommendations. We had a group from Johns Hopkins that did an evidence review for us so that they could be evidence-based guidelines. And we really carefully reviewed the literature and Bonnie Slovis and I were the co-chairs and we had a group of experts in the field and have come out with new recommendations. To put those recommendations in context, I'm going to ask you to start us out with some deep background. Cystic fibrosis-related diabetes, CFRD. How does it differ from other types of diabetes? CF-related diabetes is unique. It has features of the other two forms of diabetes. Type 1 and type 2 diabetes are the forms of diabetes that that affect the general population. Type 1 diabetes occurs primarily in children and it is an autoimmune disease. The immune system attacks and destroys the islets. So people with type 1 diabetes eventually can't make any insulin. They will die without insulin therapy. Type 2 diabetes is usually found in adults, although we are certainly seeing adolescents now with type 2 diabetes. And to have type 2 diabetes, you need two defects. You need to be resistant to insulin, and the most common reason to be resistant to insulin is obesity. But not everybody who's insulin resistant gets type 2 diabetes. You also have to have beta cells that are able to make a usual amount of insulin, but not able to make extra insulin. 
So CF diabetes occurs in patients who have had half their pancreas destroyed by fibrosis. These are insulin insufficient patients. Insulin's not completely absent, but they don't have enough insulin to meet their needs. They have very mild insulin resistance most of the time, but anytime they become severely ill, which of course happens quite often in CF, they become very insulin resistant. So they are insulin insufficient, but not insulin absent, and they have waxing and waning insulin resistance, which makes them very unique. Uh, and again, still as background, the diagnostic criteria for diabetes. The diagnostic criteria are criteria that have been developed by the American Diabetes Association, and they include a fasting blood sugar that is greater than 126, a blood sugar during an oral glucose tolerance test that's greater than 200 at the end of the oral glucose tolerance test. And then there is a third new criteria that is just going to come out now in January of 2010, and that's hemoglobin A1C greater than 6.5. And there's been talk for years about using hemoglobin A1C as a diagnostic criteria for diabetes but there were problems with having a uniform assay. But that has been taken care of worldwide now. And so probably for the general population, hemoglobin A1C is going to become the screening test of choice for diabetes. But those three things all can diagnose diabetes. Well, now, since CF-related diabetes is so different from type 1 and type 2 diabetes, the American Diabetes Association, do their diagnostic criteria really apply to CFRD? Well, yes and no. The ADA criteria are based on risk of microvascular complications. And CF patients get microvascular complications at probably the same blood glucose levels. So certainly if someone has a fasting blood sugar of 126 or a two-hour OGTT glucose of 200, they have diabetes. Those criteria apply. The hemoglobin A1C criteria are a little bit more problematic. If someone has a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5 or above, clearly they have CF-related diabetes. Problem is if the hemoglobin A1C level is less than that. So many CF patients have spuriously low hemoglobin A1C levels. So the problem there is that if you get a high level, you know it's diabetes. But if you get a low level, you can't use that to exclude a diagnosis of diabetes. So that's the first issue about the ADA criteria. They do apply to CF, but a hemoglobin A1C level lower than 6.5 does not exclude diabetes. The second question, though, which is a really interesting question that the committee grappled with for a while, is are these criteria strict enough for patients with CF? Because even though we do worry about microvascular complications and don't want our patients to get them, our real concern in CF is that hyperglycemia affects CF lung disease and can affect morbidity and mortality in these patients. And there are some data that forms of glucose intolerance that are less severe than diabetes, like impaired glucose tolerance, may have a very negative effect on CF lung disease. So the real question is, should we develop stricter criteria for patients with CF based on their risk of worsening lung disease should we be diagnosing and treating them earlier. And the conclusion the committee came to was, even though we all really thought there probably was something there, there just are not enough data yet to assign specific glucose thresholds. And so we really need more research. And until those research questions are answered, the committee elected to continue to use the ADA criteria. The date of onset of diabetes, why is that so important in CFRD? 
The date of onset is important for any form of diabetes. We know that duration of diabetes in general is related to complications. It's related to your risk of microvascular complications like eye and kidney and nerve disease. In the general population, it's related to risk of macrovascular complications, heart attack and stroke. Actually, those macrovascular complications do not seem to occur in CF, but we know in CF that not only microvascular complications, but pulmonary function decline, mortality, have a relation to the duration of diabetes. So in particular for research studies, but also just to have a sense of patients' risks, it's really important to have a date of onset of diabetes. You wouldn't think that would be so difficult. It's not so difficult in other forms of diabetes. It is difficult in CF. And the problem is that there are two things going on in CF. One is slowly over time, these patients are losing their ability to make insulin. But acutely from day to day, week to week, insulin resistance can wax and wane. They get sick, they're very insulin resistant, then they're not sick anymore, and their insulin sensitivity returns. And so blood glucose levels can go up and down. So a patient might be hyperglycemic this week and might not be hyperglycemic next week. And so do you say that diabetes started this week or did it go away? Do you wait until the patient is continuously hyperglycemic to diagnose diabetes? And this was really a tricky question to answer. What we know is that some patients with CF are first recognized to have diabetes when they have an abnormal oral glucose tolerance test, when they're clinically stable. And this year, that test might show diabetes with a fasting blood sugar with a uh, two-hour level of, let's say, 210. And the next year, maybe their two-hour level is 199, so they just missed the threshold. Are those two numbers really different? There are other patients who get diagnosed during physical stress, like hospitalization. They're sick, they're hospitalized, their blood sugars are really high, they need insulin, but a month later they don't need insulin. So do they have diabetes? What the committee decided was that once you are diagnosed with diabetes, you always have diabetes. And this was based on the longitudinal data that we have in CF, most of which has come out of the University of Minnesota. So here at the University of Minnesota, the first time a patient has an abnormal diabetic oral glucose tolerance test, they're diagnosed with diabetes. The first time they have prolonged hyperglycemia during a hospitalization, they're diagnosed with diabetes even if their blood sugar levels return to normal afterwards. Based on that diagnosis, we have been able to say there's a relationship to risk of microvascular disease. We can predict the rate of lung function decline, and there is a relation to mortality. So that diagnosis has important prognostic implications. This is in some ways similar to type 2 diabetes. If you have a patient with type 2 diabetes who's obese and then they lose weight and their blood sugars get normal, do you say their diabetes is cured? No, their beta cell defects are still there. You don't say the diabetes is cured, you just say it's controlled. The CF patient who comes in two or three times a year and is hyperglycemic and needs insulin has diabetes, even if in between those hospitalizations their blood sugars normalize. Because every time they get sick, every time they come in, that hyperglycemia is going to recur. So the bottom line is that the committee decided based on clinically important outcomes, based on the fact that we know that the hyperglycemia recurs again and again and again, once a patient meets diagnostic criteria, they have diabetes, 
the diabetes doesn't go away, but it may be controlled without treatment during periods of stable health. In 1998, the Consensus Conference recommended that CFRD patients be identified as either having or not having fasting hyperglycemia. Do patients still need to be identified that way? Well, the reason that that was recommended in the first place was that CFRD without fasting hyperglycemia is really a milder form of diabetes. It's all part of a spectrum, and those patients without fasting hyperglycemia have less severe diabetes. So the question was, do they need to be treated the same? And back in 1998, we really didn't know the answer to that. And so it was recommended that until we could determine that, we should identify them separately. It was actually at that conference in 1998 identified as the most important future research question to figure out whether these patients should be treated with diabetes therapy or not. And that led to a large multi-center, multinational study funded by both the CF Foundation and the National Institutes of Health And there were 14 centers in the U.S. and Canada and Great Britain and took place over a number of years. But we specifically took patients who had CFRD without fasting hyperglycemia and treated them in one of three ways. We treated them with either insulin before meals, repaglinide before meals, or placebo before meals. And repaglinide is an oral agent, it's a pill that stimulates endogenous insulin secretion. So our hypothesis was that if we increased insulin in these patients, we would prevent clinical decline, and specifically what we were looking at was weight and body mass index. And so we tried to increase insulin either by giving insulin or by trying to stimulate endogenous insulin. Patients were treated for a year, And what we looked at was the change in BMI the year before therapy versus the year of therapy. So what we found in these patients who had diabetes without fasting hyperglycemia is that all of them had a slight but significant drop in BMI the year before therapy. So averaging about a couple pounds. And you can imagine if patients are losing a couple pounds a year chronically that that would certainly be significant. During the year of therapy, insulin reversed that. Not only did they not lose two or three pounds, but they gained two or three pounds. So insulin therapy clearly benefited those patients. Placebo did nothing. The repaglinide actually did have a bump in weight initially, but then they weren't able to sustain it. And so by the end of the study year, they were losing weight just as fast as before. And we believe that's because they have so few beta cells. So you can stimulate those beta cells, but you can only push them so hard and then they just can't do it anymore. So the results of the study clearly indicated that insulin therapy in these patients without fasting hyperglycemia reversed chronic weight loss. And so because of that, the recommendation is now that they be treated the same as patients with fasting hyperglycemia. So from a strictly clinical standpoint, there is no reason to separate those two kinds of diabetes. There may still be research reasons, in particular trying to figure out if there are different insulin regimens that might work better or different ways of treating them with insulin. However, from a clinical standpoint, it is not necessary to differentiate the two. And we'll return in just a moment with Dr. Tony Moran from the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology at the University of Minnesota. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. 
I am one of the program directors of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews the current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a thousand of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to our December 2009 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. Our guest is Dr. Tony Moran, Director of Pediatric Endocrinology at the Medical School at the University of Minnesota, and our topic is cystic fibrosis-related diabetes. Dr. Moran, we've been talking about some of the recommendations that came out of the recent CFRD consensus conference. I'd like to ask you now about screening. Based on those recommendations, what should be the screening test of choice for CFRD? The test of choice for CF-related diabetes is the oral glucose tolerance test, and that is based in large part on the poor performance of other tests. You know, I talked earlier about hemoglobin A1C. In actual practice worldwide, hemoglobin A1C is going to become the screening test of choice for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes because it's so easy to do. It's just a one-time test. The patient doesn't have to be fasting. And in CF patients, if it's 6.5 or above, that is sufficient to diagnose diabetes. The problem is a large, large number of CF patients with diabetes have hemoglobin A1C levels less than 6.5. So hemoglobin A1C is just not sufficiently sensitive to be the screening test of choice for CFRD. There are other tests that the committee looked at. Fasting glucose, for example, has until recently been the screening test of choice for type 1 and type 2 diabetes. The problem is it doesn't pick up the patients who have diabetes without fasting hyperglycemia, and we know now that those patients need to be treated, and they can only be picked up by OGTT. There are tests like fructosamine that may be more sensitive in CF because of their rapid red cell turnover, but there are just no data comparing outcomes to fructosamine levels in CF. No one would know what to do with it. 
random blood glucose levels, urine glucose, have all been shown to have low sensitivity in this population. Continuous glucose monitoring where you wear a sensor at home is something that many people, and especially Europeans, are excited about. And what we know is that if you have a patient with normal glucose tolerance and you send them home and measure their blood sugars at home, they have high blood sugars at home. Once you get them on their usual diet, they have little spikes in blood sugar during the day. And you can pick that up with CGM, continuous glucose monitoring. But we have no idea what it means. Even in type 1 and type 2 diabetes, it's not recommended as a screening tool because there just are no prospective longitudinal outcome data telling us it's significant. So we considered all of those things and none of them were sufficient and that got us right back to the oral glucose tolerance test. The OGTT, the oral glucose tolerance test, doesn't that have a lot of variability? Yeah, you're right. It's not an ideal test. No one would tell you it's an ideal test. So the test itself is variable. I don't have diabetes, and if I took the test on three different days, there'd probably be some variation in my results. So the test itself is variable, and then CF patients are variable. Their waxing and waning inflammatory and infectious status also influence the results. So it is not a perfect test, but we really don't have anything better. And what we do have with the OGTT is longitudinal outcome data. The OGTT correlates with important outcomes like the rate of lung function decline over the next four years, the risk of microvascular complication, the risk of early death. In the CFRDT study, it identified patients who responded positively to diabetes therapy. So yeah, it's not a great test, but we know that CF patients who have ever had a diabetic pattern on the OGTT have greater risk for clinical deterioration than those who have never had a diabetic OGTT. So while it's not perfect, it does have prognostic significance, and at least at the moment, it's the best test we have. At what age should OGTT screening begin, and, and how often should it be performed? There was some difference of opinion in the consensus conference about this. And, you know, of course, a consensus conference involves what everybody can live with. So what we know is that the risk of diabetes begins to sharply rise at the age of about 10 years. It is very rare to have diabetes in CF patients younger than 10, but about a quarter of CF patients, 20 to 25% of CF patients between the ages of 10 and 20 have diabetes. So the committee elected that 10 years is recommended as the minimum starting age for OGTC screening. Now at the University of Minnesota, we start earlier. We start at six. And there are data that individuals who don't have diabetes but have abnormal glucose tolerance between the ages of six and nine are at very high risk for early development of diabetes, diabetes within three to five years after the oral glucose tolerance test. So I'm going to continue to start at age six, and the other centers will have to choose how early they want to start, but certainly by age 10. And then the test should be done annually, and the reason it should be done annually is that CF patients can start to have clinical deterioration six to 12 months before they get diabetes, and you don't want to miss that. And so prolonging it might put undue risk on the patient for clinical deterioration. The treatment goals for CFRD, define those for us if you would please. 
The treatment goals are the same as for other forms of diabetes. We know that if your hemoglobin A1C is 7 or above and you have CF, you are at risk for eye and kidney complications similar to type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So the goal is to maintain the hemoglobin A1C level less than 7 and the goal is to maintain glucose goals within the same ranges that the ADA recommends and those differ by age. They're slightly more lenient in younger patients than older patients and achieving those treatment goals. What's the best evidence-based therapy to do that in patients with CFRD? The only therapy that there's any evidence for is insulin, and there is good evidence that insulin therapy reverses chronic weight loss. That's from the CFRDT trial. And then there are also good longitudinal data that mortality is significantly reduced when there is aggressive screening and aggressive treatment with insulin. We know insulin therapy improves weight, improves protein catabolism, improves pulmonary function, and improves survival. So in patients with diabetes, there is really no question that insulin is the therapy. There is some question yet in patients with lesser forms of abnormal glucose tolerance, like impaired glucose tolerance. Should those patients get insulin therapy or maybe some other diabetes therapy? There just really is not enough information right now to determine that. And that was actually what was identified at this consensus conference as the most important research question moving forward. In patients who become acutely ill, if hyperglycemia develops, how should that be handled? Well, so we know that when patients are acutely ill, that they are very insulin resistant. For example, if you have somebody who already has diabetes and is on insulin, their insulin at least doubles and sometimes it triples, sometimes it quadruples. They, they are tremendously insulin resistant and need a lot of insulin while they're sick. And then even though the illness tends to appear to be resolved in a couple weeks, usually takes a month or so for the insulin resistance to return towards normal. Now, the question is in patients who are not on insulin who come into the hospital and become hyperglycemic. There are not a lot of CF-specific data on intensive insulin therapy in the acute illness setting, but we know from other populations that prolonged hyperglycemia might delay clinical recovery, might have a negative impact on nutrition, on infectious status. So the goal is really to have near normalization of blood glucose. There are some patients who come in and you start therapy and right away their hyperglycemia gets better. So we tend to wait about 48 hours and then if patients are still hyperglycemic, they're diagnosed with diabetes and they are started on insulin. There's a number of different ways the insulin can be given, but the goal is just to achieve the most normal glucose levels you can achieve safely, so without causing hypoglycemia. And you keep the patient on insulin as long as they are hyperglycemic. Some of them will need it continuously even after they get better. Some of them will be able to come off of insulin at least until the next illness. Well, one final question, Dr. Moran. Look into the future for us, if you would. What do you see as the top research considerations in CFRD? This is actually perhaps the most fun part about the conference is just to really put our heads together and decide what were the most burning issues. And we came up with five. So the first one I already mentioned, the one that everyone really agreed was the most critical right now was what do we do with patients who don't quite meet diabetes diagnostic criteria but have abnormal glucose tolerance? Would they benefit from some form of medical therapy? And if so, what should that be? The second question had to do with what the obstacles are to oral glucose tolerance screening. We know that a number of centers have a difficult time getting OGTT screening up and running. And so how can we overcome those questions, overcome those problems at those centers? 
The third question that was identified was, why does the additional diagnosis of diabetes negatively impact pulmonary function and survival? What is that relation? The fourth question was, should the target goals for glucose and or hemoglobin A1c be different in CFRD compared to ADA target goals? Should they be stricter? And the fifth question was a psychosocial question. How do we assess and improve patient acceptance of the diagnosis of diabetes to improve patient self-management and psychosocial well-being? So those were the five top areas that were identified, and actually one of the participants in the conference was from the NIH, and the NIH is looking towards its future goals for CF diabetes research and will certainly take these into account. Dr. Tony Moran from the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology at the University of Minnesota, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. This podcast is presented in conjunction with eCystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME and CNE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.75 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. For nurses, this 0.75 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.75 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Uran Pharmaceuticals, Rutex Pharmaceuticals, and Axcan Pharma. This program is copyrighted, with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.